0: <laughs> <laughs> so open to Genesis 22 Genesis chapter 22 Genesis being the first book of the Bible The 22nd chapter <laughs> uh, Verse 1, we're going to start right, right at the beginning Okay, are we ready? And Isaac said to his father, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, Caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the, called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on, of the, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Let's stop there. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word here today. And Lord, I just pray that as it goes forth, that you would give us a spirit of understanding a spirit of application in our lives as your truth is eternally true it is never irrelevant but lord we pray father you would increase our faith grow us in our love for you grow us in our understanding lord of your of your word and just grow us lord in our um, ability to walk in the faith that you have called us in mm-hmm. and it's in jesus's name we pray amen, amen. all right <clears throat> so some heavy stuff today. Yes, sir. I didn't know we were doing question answers. After the sermon, right? Are you going to mention it? Oh, yes. Sorry. So people can listen intently? Yeah. are formal interview. So yeah, I thank accept, you. I accept your apology. I forgot. So we're going to do something a little different today after the Selah period, after the sermon. Um, if anybody has any questions about the sermon or any you know, comments or whatever that are relevant to the sermon, we're going to leave a time open there for, for, for discussion. Um, you know, as you will, just you know, write down if if you come across something that you don't understand or have a question, just to, to to get everybody kind of involved with growing and learning in the sermon. So leave it at that. All right. So with that said, how many of us remember the original USA Olympic basketball dream team? Nineteen ninety two. See, prior to to that year, the United States had always had the best college players go to the Olympics, but that year they changed their policy because the competition in the world was getting to be pretty pretty good. So that year they made it so pros could play on the Olympic team, and it was awesome. (laughs) You had the best of the best. Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Karl Malone, and Patrick Ewing were the starters, and I know a lot of you are like who? (laughs) Um, but they were the best of the best the elite and they dominated the world they truly earned the name dream team so what does this have to do with our scripture today well Genesis 22 this chapter is in my opinion part of the dream team of prophetic passages in the Bible the best of the best the elite Genesis 22 is among the top five messianic prophecies in the Bible in my opinion My dream team would be, of course, Genesis 22, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Daniel 9, Zechariah 12, verse 10. That's my personal, you you guys might have some other ones you want to add in, but that's my dream team. And why do I consider these to be the best of the best prophetic passages? Well, what made the dream team basketball team so great? It was because each player had many aspects of their game that they dominated in multiple things that they could do at a level that no one else could. Each player was not just a good shooter, but they were great on defense. They were great on rebounds, passing, uh, ball control, and leadership on their team. In a similar way, each of these five prophetic passages I've cited have multiple prophetic aspects to them that they present, uh, which increase their value as far as increasing our faith. They each provide multiple prophetic elements that are so specific and clear. And these multiple elements set them apart from the many other prophecies in the Bible that are more one-dimensional. And don't get me wrong, all biblical prophecy is awesome and amazing. And remember, Christ has proclaimed on every single page, Old Testament and New. But these five, to me, stand out as the best of the best and provide undeniable evidence that man didn't write the Bible, but God did. But the unbeliever will still come along and say, big deal. All religions have so-called fulfilled prophecies. They will say, given enough time, eventually stuff just coincidentally happens. However, a person that says this, we need to understand, simply has no understanding of what biblical prophecy actually looks like and how specific it is. Nor do they know anything about the so-called prophecies of other religions, such as Islam or Mormonism. And it doesn't take long to discover how shallow and ambiguous the prophecies are from other religions. It's also easy to discover how so-called prophets like Muhammad and Joseph Smith from Mormonism got most of their prophecies wrong, making them false prophets by the biblical standard. But the nature of biblical prophecy is beyond just uh, mere coincidence due to, as I stated earlier, The numerous specific details involving places, events, specific people, and even exact timing. Details that had to surround one man in one lifetime, in a specific time, and in a specific place. Of course, that man being Jesus Christ, and that time and place being first century Israel. Anyway, we know that these Old Testament prophetic texts were written, they were in black and white, long before Christ came, long before the church came along. Someone may ask, well, how do we know that? How do we know that to be true? How do we know the church didn't just come along and change certain texts to make it sound like fulfilled prophecy? Because that's what Muslims claim about Christians. They claim that Christians have changed the text to make prophecies seem like they've been fulfilled. But they have no evidence of such a claim. On the contrary, we actually have evidence that that hasn't happened. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls give us physical evidence that the church did not rewrite these prophecies. The Dead Sea Scrolls confirm these prophecies were written before Christ came. And for those who don't know who, what the Dead Sea Scrolls are, they, they are a collection of scrolls and manuscript fragments found in clay pots in, a cave, in caves near the Dead Sea. And they were found in 1947, undoubtedly the greatest archaeological find in all of history. The clay pots uh, contained manuscripts from every book of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. They even found complete scrolls, of, like of the book of Isaiah. But when dated, the majority of the documents are found to have been penned between 200 B.C. and the 1st century, predating Christ. And this is significant because, it, again, it proves these prophecies were not written after Christ came. It shows us the Old Testament biblical text we have today is the same as it was before the church came along. It proves the prophecies were not forgeries, as Muslims claim, and other unbelieving skeptics. And yes, the text today, Genesis 22, was also among those texts found in the Dead Sea documents, proving this prophecy was written before Christianity began. In fact, all of my Dream Team texts were in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So what's so great about Genesis 22? Well, Genesis 22, if we look at the multiple elements of of prophecy within them, they point us toward the triune nature of God that was veiled in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. It also clearly points us towards Christ's atoning sacrifice. It illustrates the crucifixion of Christ and many details and aspects of it. And it also predicts the resurrection, believe it or not. It does this some 1,500 years in advance when Moses penned this. Also, the text even tells us that this account in Genesis 22 was a prophetic picture. God identified this account as prophecy, showing us what he was planning to do way back then. So with that said, let's dive in and break down these, pa- these verses, starting at verse 1, Genesis twenty-one or 22, 1. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And that, that's going to be the title of my sermon today, here I am. And I'll explain why. But it starts off by saying after these things. Well, after what things? Well, what things is he talking about? He's talking about the things that happened in verse, in chapter 21. Something that Mark Merklinger taught on a couple weeks ago. The banishing of Hagar and Ishmael from, from the household of Abraham and Sarah. Um, and also the covenant that was made between Abraham and Abimelech. But more generally speaking, this chapter, chapter 22, comes after 10 chapters describing Abraham's sanctification process. A process that would build his faith to be able to do what God called him to do here in chapter 22. Because if God had called Abraham to go and sacrifice his son 10 chapters earlier, I guarantee you Abraham would have squirmed his way out of that one as he did in many other things that God was having him do. So this would be the ultimate test for Abraham so far. But wait a minute. Why would God even have to test Abraham? Why does God test anyone? Doesn't God know how much faith Abraham had? After all, it's God who gives us faith. But as we've talked about before, God doesn't test his people so that he can learn where we are at. No, God tests us to show us where we are at in our walk. He tests us as part of his means of sanctifying us to grow in our faith. In every trial and in every tribulation and in every blessing that we receive, we should be examining ourselves, examining our hearts to judge our own reactions and motives in those circumstances. In this, God shows us where he has grown us in our faith and where we still lack faith. And if we are prayerfully paying attention, this is key, if we are prayerfully paying attention, we will see that God tests us every day in some capacity. And if we are not examining ourselves in the process, then we are not redeeming the gift that God is giving us. In every trial and every tribulation we endure, God is gifting us with a chance To grow in our faith. Think about that. Every trial we face is in fact a gift from God. We don't think like that. We think, God, why are you doing this to me? But in reality, it's a gift. An opportunity to walk in and grow in the faith that he has given us. But we need to be engaged. And that is why the Bible so strongly encourages us to be in constant prayer. Prayer is the means by which we engage in self-examination in our circumstances so that these opportunities for growth in our walk don't pass us by unnoticed. Anyway, God spoke to Abraham in this account, calling him out and take note of Abraham's response. He said, here I am. And in this phrase, it's the grammatical equivalent of a soldier reporting for duty. A statement of complete submission and devotion. Abraham would be the first of several recorded in scripture who would make such a sincere and faithful statement to God. Jacob responded to God's call saying, Here I am in Genesis 31.11. When God appeared to Jacob in a dream. And as a result, Jacob went on to leave Laban and begin the nation that would be named after him, Israel. In a later part of Jacob's life, when God told him to move to Egypt in Genesis 46-2, Jacob said, Here I am again. Some 400 years after him, Moses said it in Exodus 3-4, when Moses heard God call him from the burning bush. And Moses responded, Here I am. This action began the exodus of the Jewish Jewish people from Egypt. And about 400 years later, in 1 Samuel 3-4, the Lord called Samuel, While he was very young and was used by God in many ways, including God using him to both anoint David and and Saul, the first two kings of Israel. And after another 400 years, the prophet Isaiah said, here I am. In Isaiah 6, 8, he said, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? That's God. And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. This was the beginning of God's commission to Isaiah. He went on to become a great prophet of God. Then in the New Testament, Ananias in Acts 9.10 said, Here I am to God's call. God used Ananias to go and communicate about Jesus and, and heal a man named Saul, who would become known as Paul. At the time of Saul's salvation, he had been terrorizing Christians, imprisoning them, and even executing them. Ananias needed great courage to present himself to God and to go to this man Saul and lay hands on him and usher him into the body, actually. I'm sure there were many in the church at the time who told Ananias that he was crazy for doing this. Some may have even thought that Ananias was a traitor for letting this persecutor of the church into their circle. But through faith, he did it. This is why we need to be prayerful and careful about how we judge people based on their past sin. We can see people who commit such horrible sin and resolve that we would never allow such a person into our fellowship, even if they've repented and shown fruit of genuine faith. But Paul was a murderer of Christians. And he he imprisoned them, he persecuted them. And God called him into the church. And he used this faithful man, Ananias, to bring him in. Just something to consider. Anyway, it's a picture of grace. But anyway, this is quite a list of men who said this phrase, here I am. God gifted them with great faith and they reported for duty. And God used them to do great things for in the kingdom, great things that required great faith. Who do we report to? Who did you report to today when you woke up? Do we begin each day by saying, "God, here I am"? God likely doesn't speak audibly to us, to any of us or appear to us as He did with many of these men that we read about. But we have something even more clear: <laughs> we have His God-breathed Word in our laps. And if we begin each day in prayer and in His Word, and respond to God's Word, saying, "Here I am," we will have a. Um, We'll have more of an eternal perspective of each day. And Jesus will, in fact, put you to work for his kingdom. That being said, and going on to verse 2. And here's where it gets heavy. He said, God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains which I shall tell you, tells him to go and kill his son as a sacrifice. First God told Abraham to take his only son whom he loved. And this is not suggesting that Abraham didn't love his other son Ishmael, the other son that he had with Hagar. No, this is simply reaffirming that Abraham was given only one child of promise. As was stated in chapter 21, Abraham was not pleased when Sarah uh, wanted Hagar and Ishmael kicked out of the house permanently. And when God commanded Abraham to do as his wife had asked, he certainly would have felt sorrow because Abraham loved Ishmael and he loved Isaac. And as Merck pointed out two weeks ago, we begin to see growth in Abraham as he did what God told him to do, something that. He probably didn't want to do, but he did it anyway. But now several years have passed going into chapter 22. Several years had passed since the previous chapter that described the weaning of Isaac, which would have happened when Isaac was around two years old. But in Genesis 22, Isaac is old enough to communicate. He's old enough to carry wood up a mountain and travel a long distance. So he was no longer a toddler. In fact, he was probably a teenager. So God telling Abraham to take his only son, whom he loved, on this journey was a, re- was a reaffirmation that Isaac was the only child of promise. And he might have said this because so that Abraham would not have any kind of notion that Isaac was somehow expendable or replaceable. And that maybe maybe Ishmael could possibly become the child of promise if for some reason Isaac died. God may have been making sure Abraham understood that his promise to Abraham to make him a great nation and bless the world was exclusively wrapped up in Isaac. But on top of that, God communicates to us that Abraham genuinely loved Isaac, which would make this command by God to sacrifice him all the more difficult. He told Abraham to take Isaac to the land of Moriah, now, where exactly is this land of Moriah? Well, the book of Chronicles tells us precisely where the land of Moriah is. In fact, it tells us that on Mount Moriah was the site where Solomon would build the temple. A thousand years after this account, in Genesis 22. two. Second Chronicles 3.1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. But anyway, our text mentions the land of Moriah. So while the Temple Mount was located on a mountain called Mount Moriah, it's critical for us to realize that there were several mountains in this area that made up the land of Moriah. One of those mountains was, in fact, a mountain called Golgotha, otherwise known as Calvary, where Jesus was crucified. And this passage in Genesis 22 hints to us that the very mountain where God led Abraham to sacrifice his son, was also the very location where God would sacrifice his one and only son, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years after that. (laughs) Yeah, But we will come back to that. Anyway, how could God do this? The skeptic will ask, how can God command Abraham to kill his son and yet still be angry with murderers? Doesn't that make God a hypocrite? And we, we need to be prepared to answer this challenge, to answer this question. Of course, we must first point out that God did not ultimately allow Abraham to go through with it. But regardless of that, there are other examples of God commanding his people, namely Israel, to kill other people. Deuteronomy 20.16, let me read it. It says, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. So you sin, So, so you and you sin against the Lord your God. So here, this is when Israel was going into the land. God commands them, you're going to have to kill all these people. Thousands and thousands of people. But the word states why God commanded this. The complete destruction of these nations. That they may not teach the Israelites to do according to all their abominable practices that they had done. Their idolatry. But this is one of those go-to passages that unbelievers will cite in order to to portray God, the God of the Bible, as immoral. This alongside with God commanding Abraham to kill his son. They'll say that's immoral. So how are we to respond to that challenge? Well, when someone calls into question the morality of God, there are two major, major problems that they are failing to see. First, by what universal moral standard are they judging the God of the Bible? Because it is God who defines murder as sin, not man. We are his creation, and if murder is clearly wired into us as being universally morally wrong, then it is our creator who wired it into us. And the unbeliever will likely ignore that and say, well, then your God does one thing and says another. So you worship a hypocrite. Again, by what universal standard are they invoking hypocrisy? As, a, as being wrong, if they reject the being who wired us with knowledge that hypocrisy is wrong. The reality is that we, as created beings, have no ability to judge the creator of all things, nor do we have the right. God does not answer to his creation, we answer to him. He judges his creation based on his sovereign will and his sovereign knowledge of all things. We don't have knowledge of all things. We don't even have a sovereign will. We are slaves, whether it be to sin or to God. Mm -hmm. Nobody has free will. We are enslaved one way or another. Every breath a person enjoys is an example of God's grace. And every death of every sinner is an example of God's justice. But death is also an act of mercy that God gives us. It's, death is an act of mercy for his elect. And that God sets us free from this fallen flesh and this fallen world. So God's justice was enacted when God commanded the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, etc. That might sound offensive to some people. But if it does, I'm here to tell you that those who say that don't have a high enough regard for God's holiness. Because we cannot see into the hearts of men to know what they will do in their fallen nature, but God can and God does. So God is not a murderer. (laughs) He gives life and he alone has the right to take it as he wills for his purpose. Even a mother does not give life to to her child in the womb. God is the author of life. The mother and the father are the recipients of that gift, and they are the means by which God brings the child into the world. Anyway, my point here is that we have no right to judge God for what he commanded Israel to do or what he commanded Abraham to do here in twenty-two, chapter 22. So let's move on to verse 3. <clears throat> so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for a burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So take note of the unwavering, faithful response of Abraham. He didn't try to find some way out of this as he had in the past. he faithfully obeyed, even though he didn't understand why God commanded such a thing. He knew what God promised concerning his son Isaac. So something in his mind had to be wondering, why would God tell him to kill Isaac? I mean, remember what God promised concerning Isaac. He was the child of promise, whom all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. God specifically points to Isaac as being the the conduit of this blessing. So how would God multiply Abraham's seed through Isaac if God is telling Abraham to kill Isaac before he even had children? What was going through Abraham's mind in this situation? How could he have reconciled these two things, this apparent contradiction, God's promise in Isaac and God's command to kill him? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us how Abraham reconciled this apparent contradiction. Turn there, if you will, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. <clears throat> Hebrews 11:17 through 19. It says by faith Abraham being tried offered up Isaac, yea, he that had gladly received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, even he to whom it was said in Isaac shall thy seed be called accounting that, now here it is, this is Abraham, accounting that God is able to raise up, even from the dead, from whence he did also, in a parable, receive him back. Abraham had to account that God would be able to raise up Isaac. The author of Hebrews reveals to us that Abraham was able to go through with this command by God because he had faith that God would have to resurrect his son from the dead. This is an amazing faith that Abraham must have had, that he was given. But we need to understand that that level of faith that he showed in this account was the product of decades of sanctification. It wasn't an instant microwave dinner faith. No, Abraham was being cooked on a pot for a long time because that's how the best sauce is made. (laughs) I <laughs> just wanted to see how you, if you guys are awake. Anyway, the longer we are sanctified in Christ, the more Christ-like we become over time. So Abraham faithfully walked in his call of God, knowing that God would have to resurrect his son Isaac to fulfill his promise that he made. And he trusted that he would. Just as Christ himself knew that his father would resurrect him after dying on the cross. As Jesus himself said in Mark 9, he said, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. That's Jesus talking about himself. He trusted that his father would resurrect him. And speaking of the third day, in verse 4 of Genesis 22, it says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey and I will go over there and worship and come again to you. So the mentioning of the third day here, I think, is very significant. God doesn't put details like this into his word for no reason at all. In fact, the, pas- the passage we read in Hebrews chapter 11 makes mention of the parable, a parable concerning the significance of the third day. You see, Abraham had already come to terms with the fact that he was going to kill his son. From the time before they left on this three-day journey to Moriah, he, in Abraham's mind, Isaac had already been dead for three days when they arrived in Moriah because he resolved to obey God. And on this third day, as they went up the mountain, as we will see, Isaac would be metaphorically resurrected in Abraham's mind when God stopped Abraham from killing him. It's a part of that parable that Hebrews 11 was talking about. So we not only have a prophetic picture of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, but also of his resurrection. His resurrection being illustrated in this account. Now, some may think, well, this makes Abraham heartless and unloving to render his son dead in his mind. But on the contrary, Abraham recognized that this life is not all that there is. He knew that going through with this was the most loving thing that he could do. He was expressing total faith in the goodness of God to achieve God's good purpose, which would be the best thing for his son and the best thing for his people. God's purpose is always the best thing for his people. And then moving on to verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went both of them together. So the father, Abraham, placed the wood upon the back of his son to carry it up this mountain in order to die. 2,000 years later, God the father would lay wood upon the back of his son to carry it up that exact same mountain Isaac walked up to also die. And then in verse 7, And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Okay, so Isaac calls out to his father as they climb up this mountain in the land of Moriah. And notice how Abraham responds to his son's call. It was the exact same way he responded to God's call in verse 1. He said, here I am. I think it's significant. Remember, this term had a contextual meaning in verse 1 of Abraham reporting to duty for, before God. And Abraham saying it again, I believe Abraham is again reporting for duty before God. Abraham was placing himself at the service of Isaac as if he was placing himself at the service of God. Abraham recognized there was divine co- uh, significance in what they were doing, though he didn't know why God told him to do this. Regardless, Abraham was fully engaged in this mission, not thinking of himself, but only of God's will being done. And this should be our heart as well in serving others, that we are not just serving them because of the way we feel about them, Because, but we are primarily serving people because we are reporting for duty to God. Because if we have the mindset of primarily serving the person because of our feelings for the person, Our feelings toward the people may change and eventually cause us not to want to serve that person, especially if they show some kind of ingratitude toward us. So we must have a serving God first mindset when we minister to people, because people will be unthankful. People will take your service for granted, but ministry is not about receiving gratitude. It's about serving God first. Anyway, they're going up this mountain with the wood and the fire. And Isaac knows that they're going up to present a sacrifice to God, but he doesn't know that he's the sacrifice. So he asks Abraham, where the lamb at? (laughs) What are we we bringing up there? And listen carefully to how Abraham answered his son. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now this is the... uh, English Standard Version, but I actually think the King James translate this passage more accurately, as does the American Standard Version and the Septuagint Translation, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. That translation says, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. The four is inserted there for our English language purposes, but I think there's significance in God saying, God will provide himself for the burnt offering the Lamb. How did John the Baptist introduce Jesus to the people when his ministry began? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is God, as we all know. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in that passage, we recognize that God the Father is God and God the Son is God, and that there is only one God. There is an intimate, intimate interwoven connection between these verses in John and what Abraham said to Isaac. God did provide himself, the Lamb. God took on human flesh and became the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. And the Holy Spirit was telling us this way back before any concept of the Trinity was understood by God's people. But here's where it gets really intense. In verse 9 in Genesis 22, it says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood uh, in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Just picture this scene. Think about how Isaac must have responded to this. Abraham just grabbed him, tied him up and laid him on top of this firewood. I'm sure pure terror had to be pulsating through the veins of Isaac along with utter confusion. What was his be- why was his beloved father doing this to him? It's almost as if you could hear Isaac screaming, "Father, father, why are you doing this to me?" Much like how Jesus would cry out on the cross to his father, "My God, my God" Why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 10, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Again, the average person who does not have the Spirit of God will read this and think, Abraham was an insane monster. But we know that he was not doing this out of insanity. He was doing this in faith. We know Abraham was not in sin, but he was doing the will of God, he was being obedient. So it had to be the most difficult thing he ever had to do. Now the skeptic will come along and say, well, then I can go just kill anyone and just say God told me to do so and you stupid Christians would would believe me. I mean, Abraham said God told him to sacrifice Isaac and you Christians celebrate this as faith. Moses claimed that God told the Israelites to slaughter entire nations and you Christians celebrate this as God's judgment. So how are we to know that God actually spoke to Moses and to Abraham? How do we know they weren't just nuts? There's a guy named Stanley Mossberg who murdered several people in Florida in 2019. And he claimed that God told him to do it. How do we know God didn't tell him to do this? Travis Ranking is called the Waffle House Killer. He murdered four people in a Tennessee Waffle House and claimed God told him to do it. But again, how do we know God didn't tell him to do this? How are are these examples different from Abraham and Moses' claim of special divine command? First of all, as I said earlier, and as we will see, God did not allow Abraham to go through with sacrificing his son. And we know that God commands in the Bible, you shall not murder. But the skeptic will say, but what about the Israelites? who murdered thousands at the command of God. Again, as I said earlier, that is not murder. That was God's judgment upon a wicked people who were murdering people themselves. The skeptic may respond by saying, well, what about Adolf Hitler? Adolf Hitler ordered the mass murder of six million Jews, and Hitler said this, quote, I believe today that my conduct is in accordance with the will of the almighty creator. Hitler claimed he was doing what God told him to do. I mean, how do we know God wasn't bringing judgment against the Jews through Hitler? Why don't Christians defend Hitler's actions as being faithful and carrying out God's will? How do we know God didn't speak directly to Adolf Hitler as he did to Moses and Abraham? Well, here's how we know. Very simple. Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In the Old Testament times, God spoke to his people through the prophets. Prophets who are identified as such because they were were 100% accurate in predicting the future. The murderers I mentioned were not prophets. (laughs) Nor was Hitler. In fact, Today, the office of prophet no longer exists in the sense that it had in the Old Testament. But today, God speaks to his people through Christ. How does God speak to us through Christ? He does this through his God-breathed Word, the Bible. Not through our feelings, not through some burning in our bosom, but through his Word. And we should be instantly skeptical of the person that comes up to you and says, God told me this or told me that. When the this or the that is not cited contextually in scripture. But wait a minute, Tim. What about Acts 2.17? Acts 2.17 says, In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. You know, I've heard people say, "Oh, God spoke to me in a dream. God spoke to me in a vision. So maybe God spoke to Hitler or the Waffle House killer through their dreams. Well, again, we need to cite things in context. Luke here in Acts 2.17 is quoting from the book of Joel. And in the first century context, prior to the New Testament canon being complete, this kind of thing was much more common where God is, was speaking to his people through dreams. But today, it is not the normative way in which God speaks to people. God may use dreams and visions today to communicate to certain people who do not have the scriptures accessible to them. We hear a lot about Muslims coming to faith through a dream that they had. But those dreams and visions are always pointing people to the same gospel and the same Christ found in scripture not to go and kill people. The point is that these murderers and Hitler were not told by God to kill. And we can prove that by scripture. Then in verse 11 of Genesis 22, it says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. There's that phrase again. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son your only son from me. So God spoke audibly to Abraham here, stopping him before he could kill Isaac. But we we read this and it seems like this is saying that God didn't know if Abraham would go through with it. It seems like this is saying God doesn't know all things and that he had to learn what Abraham would do. But if God doesn't know certain things concerning the future, if he doesn't know what we would do in a certain circumstance, then God is not sovereign, mm-hmm. nor is he able to know what will happen in the distant future. But that flies in the face of other scriptures. Psalm 139.4 says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Isaiah 42.9 says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So how do we reconcile these things and many other verses with God telling Abraham, For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son. Remember that God previously confirmed a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. The Lord would not have confirmed the covenant in the first place if he would have thought that Abraham might not be faithful. But remember also, God is the giver of faith. He is the sanctifier of our souls. So he has the power to create faith in us. And remember, this event is the culmination of years of sanctification of Abraham in his life as a believer. And by God's grace, Abraham learned to trust God at this level completely. So God knew what Abraham would do before this ever happened from eternity's past. God uses this kind of anthropomorphic language for our benefit and our understanding in our personal walk. God saying that he now knows that Abraham trusted him was stated for Abraham's benefit, that Abraham would know himself that God approved of and recognized his faith as being genuine. We all want that assurance that God knows us and that our faith is genuine and pleasing to him. We want him to say, Tim, I now know that you are faithful. This statement by God was a great blessing for Abraham. And then in verse 13, it says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So God provided a ram to die instead of Isaac. A picture of the atoning sacrifice that Christ made for us, wherein he died in our place on that very same mountain. Just as the ram died in Isaac's place. However, Abraham said that God would provide himself a lamb. A lamb. But why did he provide a ram? Has anybody ever thought about that? Mm -hmm. Why would he give a ram when he said he was going to provide a lamb? (laughs) Mm -hmm. First, take note that the passage specifically mentions how the ram was caught in the thicket by its horns. Again, a detail we shouldn't skip over. A ram or a lamb, I mean, has no horns, so it couldn't get caught in a thicket in the same way. Thickets in this region in Israel often had thorns on them, okay? The ram that died in Isaac's place, thus, when he pulled him out of that thicket, had a crown of thorns wrapped around his head. Think about that. It's not a coincidence, Similarly, Jesus, who died in our place on that very mountain, had a crown of thorns around his head. Anyway, under the Mosaic law, which would come after Abraham, a ram would be used as the sin offering presented to God on the Day of Atonement, whereas a lamb would be offered on Passover under Mosaic law. So both animals served as shadows of the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away our sin. But Abraham's words to Isaac on the mountain about God providing a lamb were purposely not fulfilled at that moment. The prophetic statement by Abraham would be ultimately fulfilled on that same mountain 2,000 years later in Christ, when God would provide himself the lamb. And Abraham predicted such in the next verse, in verse 14. It says, So Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham makes an amazing prophetic statement that indeed the true provision of the lamb was yet future. And that it would be on that very mountain that God's ultimate provision, his son, would be given. At this point, God revealed to Abraham what this was all about. This thing that he did, all this this stuff was acting out a prophecy. And Abraham rejoiced that he was able to see it. And Jesus himself confirmed that in the New Testament in John 8:56. Jesus said, "Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad." And Abraham's experience on the land of Moriah in the land of Moriah, Abraham saw the day that the lamb of God would come and take away the sin of the world. And then in Genesis 22:15, So this raises the question, if Abraham didn't obey God's voice, would the nation still have been blessed? Would Christ then not have come? (laughs) Well, it's an irrelevant question because there was no way that Abraham wouldn't have obeyed God's voice. God decreed that this would happen, and therefore he made sure it would by creating in Abraham an irresistible faith that would draw him to himself. This same process that God used to create this faith in Abraham, he is doing in each of us right now. We are going through those 10 chapters that Abraham went through in his sanctification. We are going through that same process of sanctification. wherein God is preparing us for the works that we will walk in as Ephesians two, eight and 10, eight through 10 says, and again, my favorite passage in the Bible, I cite it almost in every sermon, but here again, it has great significance. Ephesians two, verse eight through 10 says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And here's the key for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All of us will have our own Genesis 22 moments in our lives, wherein God tests us after building up our faith for years to walk in the works that he has prepared for us to walk in. And we should pray daily that we are not afraid of those moments, but that when we meet them, we meet them head-on with the faith that Abraham did. Wherein we say to God, here I am, Lord, reporting for duty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your wonderful word, your glorious word here. Written some 2,000 years before Christ would come. Showing to us that this was indeed your plan all along from the beginning. And you perfectly fulfilled it. You perfectly achieved your sovereign will. Just as we know you are perfectly achieving your sovereign will in each of our lives. And Father, I pray that you would uh, just move us each and every day to cite those words that Abraham cited, here I am reporting for duty, Lord. Each and every day that we could face every trial, every tribulation, Every difficult moment in our lives with this faith, knowing that you are enacting a gift in us, an opportunity to walk in the faith, to not let our circumstances drag us down or challenge, or cause us to question you, but to simply trust in your sovereignty and that you are doing working out all things for the good, for those that love you and are called according to your purpose. So Father, as we go into this uh, time of prayer and our time of communion, Lord, with Pray that these uh, truths would just not be lost in our in the back of our mind, but would daily be at the front of our mind, recognizing, Lord, that great and wondrous work that you did 2,000 years ago and how you revealed this to Abraham 4,000 years ago. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.